Let me ask you please to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Esther chapter 1. I'm going to read through chapter 2 verse 4, but this evening we'll just consider chapter 1 verses 10 to 22. So we read God's word as an act of worship. Um, Remember that this is the inerrant and inspired word of God to you. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the, the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for... This was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, and Mimukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the decree, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan pro- proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Thus far, the reading 
of God's holy and inerrant word. Please pray with me. Father, we ask you now to add your blessing to your word. We come not just to be taught by a man, Lord, but to learn at your feet. So we ask that you would cause your spirit to give us understanding, to see in these words why you've caused them to be preserved for your people. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. John uh, Calvin, I think it was in his commentary on Psalm 101, quipped um, that he said it commonly happens that those who are invested with the government of kingdoms and empires are fools and blockheads. It commonly happens that those who are invested with the government of kingdoms and empires are fools and blockheads. He's obviously being very reserved there in his words for those who are placed in leadership. Um, If you question that, read the Bible from cover to cover. You'll find that those who are invested with the uh, government of kingdoms and empires are often fools and blockheads. We don't find any exception here in King Ahasuerus and the way that he is ruling over Persia. Uh, This introduction to the book of Esther is trying to teach us something. This, This first part is trying to teach us something about the man Ahasuerus. As you know, he's going to play a fairly significant role in what happened to Esther and ultimately what happened to the Jewish people. Their their existence as a people, in some sense, rests upon him and how he governs them. We also learn something about what it means to be a faithful leader here. What does it mean to be a faithful leader in, in your home, in your work, in your community, in the church? Ahasuerus is the picture of a leader who was ruled by the flesh, not by the Spirit. However, as the drama of Esther unfolds, one of the things that we will learn is that God can work even through a man who is ruled by the flesh. And so there's a bit of a comfort for you and me when we are ruled over by men who uh, are ruled themselves by their flesh, we remember that God is ultimately working out His sovereign plan even when our leaders are really fools and blockheads. So we'll just see a couple of simple things here, beginning with the the way that the plot of this story flows. We'll look at the king's rage And then we'll look at the king's revenge. The king's rage and the king's revenge. We notice the king's rage in verses 10 to 12 of chapter 1. Notice the beginning there. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. For seven days, the king and all of his officials had been at this banquet. Now this came on the heels of a six-month 
long display of all of the glory, the splendor of Susa. What is Ahasuerus trying to do by bringing all of his officials in, showing them the glory of his kingdom, the tapestries, the mosaics on the floor? Well, he's trying to portray himself as a wealthy and a powerful and a strong leader, one who is worthy of their respect. Well, he's thrown himself a party. And there is copious wine. Now, we remember that not every man had to drink. He had issued a decree according to verse 8 of chapter 1. The drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion. When you see the king drinking, if it's flagons or gallons, you don't have to drink as much as he does. But we find that he was indeed a copious drinker. The scriptures record for us that he was merry with wine on the seventh day of this feast with his people. This idea of being merry in scripture with wine sometimes carries the idea of happiness. He was mirthful. He was enjoying the fruit of the harvest and was overjoyed. Sometimes it just means that he was soused. He was drunken. Whatever the case was, uh, this became the moment of his testing as a leader. He decided, according to the Scriptures here, verse 11, to parade his wife before the people. Notice what the Scriptures say. Verse 11, he sent his eunuchs, these were men who were appointed to a special position within the palace. They had been castrated. I was trying to think this afternoon what would be a, 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 a sensible way to put that. There really isn't one. They had been uh, specially prepared to serve in this way so that they, they were no threat to the king himself when they served amongst the women of his harem and alongside his one wife. He sent them with a message. Verse 11, they were to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. Here, Ahasuerus is bringing his wife out to display her like a new Camaro with a fresh wax job. He wants everybody to see her. And now, you think about this, on the seventh day, perhaps the last day of the feasting and the merriment, when everybody is jolly, everybody is thinking about the power of, of Persia and of Mede, uh, Media, uh, of being a part of this vast empire. Now, now is the moment when Ahasuerus will bring out the crown jewel, Vashti in her beauty. Some wonder if the entire offense to Vashti was that he had asked her to come forth with only the crown. So that they might behold her beauty and is shaming her as well. But we see Vashti's response in verse 12. Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged. I think at this point you should just remember the whole circumstance here. 
Vashti was holding her own banquet. All of the noblemen's wives were surrounding her. Uh, This is like the Grace Presbytery meeting that's going to take place in a few uh, weeks. The women were all there. All of the, the wives were there gathered at their own banquet. And in come the eunuchs with the summons. The seven men coming in before them. They know that there's a message. And the message is this. Now is the time for you to come forth, Vashti, and bring your crown. Put it on. Wear it. The king would have you come before all the people so that they may behold your beauty. And in that moment, understanding, listen, the weight of that moment, Vashti refused. Before all the women, before all the people, and all of this mechanism that Ahasuerus had set in motion to display his glory was suddenly brought down in an instant. And the narrator emphasizes for you at that last sentence in verse 12, his response at this, the king became enraged. And just so that you will get a sense of the depth of his rage, he goes on and says, and his anger burned within him. Ahasuerus, like a snake, coiled to strike, here is filled with venom. He is beside himself. Of all people, to destroy his moment, his gloating, his wife defied him. And not only that, but he recognized his precarious position, didn't he? He must have. All eyes were on him. He had looked up and said, turn the spotlight up. Point them all at me. I am on display here. And now they look at him, anticipating his response. What would he do? In one deft move, Vashti had become the proverbial fly in the ointment. The whole thing was ruined. There's no going back. Even if she came forth now, everybody will talk about this moment that Vashti defied the king. The glory that Ahasuerus displayed for six months is not the story that would go back to the empire, is it? Nobody will talk about that now. The Persian inquirer It's not going to carry stories about the glory of the tapestries. Oh no, now it's going to be how Vashti defied her husband. The headline would be, the crown is tarnished. Everyone will talk about Vashti's refusal. And now they look at the king. How will you respond? How would Ahasuerus respond that now that all of his pomp, all of his circumstance has been left in tatters on the floor. In fact, he is the one who is now put on display. He is now the one who is bare 
before His people. As we think about Ahasuerus here, we are reminded that in leadership, character matters. In every way, Ahasuerus is depicted in the Scriptures as a man who only pursues the satisfaction of his flesh. He was a drunkard. He he kept many women. He had an entire harem of women. And he was prone to fits of anger. You think back now to that law about the drinking. Why might that have been uh, necessary? Well, perhaps because the people in his empire recognized that he was prone to fits of anger. Scripture, on the other hand, describes good leaders as men and women who are self-controlled. They are not ruled over by their flesh, their desires. They are not continually pursuing what their flesh desires. Not looking for the next shiny thing. They are not given to too much wine. Men who are husbands of one wife. Why is this the case? Why are these things essential to good leaders? You think back just a few weeks ago and how we went through 1 Timothy chapter 3 and what makes a good elder, a good deacon in the church. And these are the descriptors of these men. Very simply, the man who does not rule himself well is not fit to rule others. The man who is given to his passions when he is leading and and is in that moment of passion and cannot think clearly to rule others, how can he demonstrate how to submit to Christ if he himself does not submit to Christ. Indeed, he cannot. And so we're led now to think not only about the king's rage, we notice in verses 13 to 22, secondly, the king's revenge. When everything hit the fan, the king said to the wise men in verse 13, who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The, next, the men next to him were Karshena, Shethar, Admathah, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So what he did now as he invited these seven men to come in with him to give him counsel. Wisely, Ahasuerus convened his trusted counselors, seven of them, to determine what to do. Remember, uh, we reflect back to the book of Daniel. At one time, just prior to this, Daniel was one of these trusted advisors. Darius, the uh, predecessor to uh, um, Ahasuerus, called for Daniel to be over the 127 provinces. And now... Ahasuerus called his trusted men. This was a wise move. We are reminded from Proverbs 13, verse 20, that the wise man walks with wise men. He doesn't walk alone. He doesn't beat his chest. But he depends on other people to help him. 
But the proverb goes on, the companion of fools will suffer harm. So now we have to gauge Ahasuerus. Is he a wise man? Or is he the companion of fools? Notice in verse 15 how Ahasuerus proceeded. According to the law, he said, this is our first, our first word. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of the king, of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs? In other words, what punishment is to be delivered? How are we to handle this situation? There is no law. And what Ahasuerus' counselors advised him to do was to create a new one, specifically for this situation. They noted, Mimikun especially, his advisor spoke up, the only one, and advised the king to listen. You must understand that Vashti's offense is not just against you. Vashti's offense is against the entire empire. Therefore, it is up to you to respond in a way that sends a message not just to Vashti. You must send a message to the empire as a whole. Are they wrong? Is this an overblown response? Remember, Vashti defied Ahasuerus surrounded by the wives of all the noblemen. The news of her act would have spread quickly through the kingdom. They're all picking up their cell phones now and calling their friends and telling them what has happened. Word will spread. Not only must Ahasuerus act, he must act quickly. But notice verse 17. Here's Mimikin's rationale. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women. He's probably right. Causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. If Ahasuerus did not act, you think that it would have caused all women to look at their husbands with contempt? Probably not. Because not all husbands would have been as contemptible as Ahasuerus was. But this is their rationale. And actually, I would remind you, as we think about some points of application here, that these men are speaking of a biblical principle. There is a biblical principle that, that the punishment must fit the crime. Turn over with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. But perhaps this is just a case of a blind squirrel finding an acorn. But nevertheless, I think we ought to reflect on this biblical principle of the punishment of a crime serving as an illustration for others. Look with me at Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11. 
pick up in verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Notice this wisdom. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. The writer of Ecclesiastes notices that because the state does not carry out its execution of judgment speedily, what are we all left to think? Well, they don't care. Now, if you don't think this is true, you remind a child about the privileges that he has in his home. And you tell him, well, you're not permitted to stay out past 11. Well, immediately, he's going to be inclined to say, but you let her do it. Well, this is the same thing in a society. And Ahasuerus counselors note this. And how many times then does a child plead his case because he saw his sibling get away with something similar? Or a grandchild? We believe that a faithful church of Jesus Christ will practice church discipline. There may be occasions when the formal process of discipline is required. And how is that to be carried out? Or what principles do we think about when we carry out church discipline? Well, some of them are are such things as the vindication of the glory of Jesus Christ. But another of them is this, the promotion of the purity and general edification of the church. In other words, what our book of church order is saying there is that we must carry out um, church discipline to remind the membership of the church that there are standards of Christian living. And it reminds us that when you see another disciplined for a sinful, gross, and open act of sin, you are reminded not to do that. Look with me over now at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to see where this flows out of uh, the doctrine of apostolic teaching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was an instance of gross immorality. Paul notes that a man uh, was sleeping with the wife of his father. Maybe a stepmother, maybe his own mom, we don't know. But the response from the Corinthian church was to do nothing. They were overlooking this. In fact, Paul goes on to say, look, uh, this isn't even practiced amongst the heathen. In other words, in Rome, if there was a case of incest, by law, you would have been banished from the empire. But the church is overlooking it. So note with me what Paul says, picking up with verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This is exactly the principle that Ahasuerus counselors are saying to him. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, 
but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what we should come away from here thinking about is this is a biblical principle. We are reminded of this over and over in when I was a, a youth. Uh, our youth pastors frequently said there's no such thing as missionary dating. And they would always have us stand up on a chair. And they'd have someone stand below and they'd say, okay, you who are on the chair, you are in Christ, pull that person up. We never could do it. And then they would say, all right, now you who are standing on the floor, pull the other person down. And it would always happen. Well, this is a biblical principle. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So with society and with the church as well, it is important that we remember that we discipline, we punish we punish wrongdoers, we punish evildoers, the church or the state should act quickly to execute judgment. Why? Because if it doesn't, it will become an example. And the state that does not execute justice speedily should not scratch its head and wonder why crime is rampant. I laugh when uh, certain officials in the state or the city say, well, we want our city to be this or that. We want to be an entertainment mecca. We want to be a place where uh, people want to come and have beautiful surroundings and nice landscaping. Listen, if you don't have justice speedily executed, no one is going to want to live in your city. And so Ahasuerus advisors are Correct, But there's another principle that we ought to observe from this passage. If and when you defy a tyrant, you must be prepared to accept the consequences. If and when you defy a tyrant, you must be prepared to accept the consequences. We are taught to live under the leadership of our overseers. Romans chapter 13 is, is very clear about this. They are from God. And so even if we think that our leaders are fools and blockheads, it does not give us a right simply to disobey their commands willy-nilly. On the other hand, Scripture does not endow earthly Rulers with unlimited power. Neither do the scriptures expect you to bow down to every ruler and every whim, even if their laws are unlawful and unjust. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, you'll remember we are we're observing through Luke's writing how the church got its birth under the new covenant and how it flourished under the preaching of the apostles. Peter and the apostles had been placed on trial. They were not allowed to go through the streets of the city and preach the gospel. Well, what did they do? They went through the streets of the city and they preached the gospel. Picking up in verse 27 of Acts chapter 5, and when they had brought them, that is the officials, the captains of the guard brought them out of prison, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them. So here they are before the rulers in the church and the rulers in the state. They set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, 
we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand and as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey. That statement by Peter resonates in our hearts. We must obey God rather than men. And if you require us to choose between God and men, we will obey God rather than men. However, if there are consequences for those actions, we accept them. Look at verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. You do not see men resisting the shackles. You do not see men fighting not to be taken. You do not see men running away from the consequences. You do not see men saying, don't take me, don't take me, don't take me. You see men obeying God and accepting the consequences for their actions. Receiving their beatings and then in verse 41... They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, what did they do? Having been commanded not to preach in the name in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Vashti recognized that the order of her husband was shameful. Ridiculous. Contemptible. And this will be a theme that we see over and over and over again in the book of Esther. And as Christians, it causes us to think, where do we obey God rather than men? To ask God to give us the bravery to do that. To have the fortitude of Vashti when necessary. And the humility of Christ to accept the consequences. You know, it's probably more common for us to live under poor, foolish, self-centered leaders than humble ones, wouldn't you say? It's more common, in other words, to live under men who pound their chest, who say, look at me and listen to all the promises that I will give you The model of Ahasuerus reminds us to select leaders when we are given that opportunity. To select leaders based on character, not on fine-sounding words. Character matters. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1-5 to are a reminder of that. Men of poor character, whether they are kings of empires, whether they are rulers in the church, will never rule well or consistently. Men of poor character will never rule well or consistently. 
You must also understand that the key to a healthy society, a healthy church, is justice administered fairly and quickly. Governments that refuse to punish evildoers should look in the mirror when they wonder why crime is rampant. And when you must resist tyranny, count the cost. Men who honor God first keep a good conscience, but are not promised escape from punishment. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for all of the inspired scriptures. We thank you for the lessons that we learn from them. And Father, as we think about your justice, we remember that sometimes we are tempted to think that you are slow to act. And then we are reminded from your word, Lord, that you do not delight in the death of the wicked. You take no delight in it. Lord, you delight in mercy. You delight when we show mercy. And Father, so we ask that you would help us to honor you by being a merciful people. We also remember that you are a God of justice. And when you act, your justice will be enacted swiftly. Father, so we pray, we pray for our church, Lord, that you would help the leaders of our church to be men of character, men who see that character matters, who uh, do not pursue the delights of the flesh, but honor Christ in the way that they um, discipline themselves, abstaining from uh, much wine, are self-controlled men. Father, we also pray that you would help us to discern when we ought to defy tyrants, when it is appropriate to obey you rather than men. And Lord, help us to have the humility to accept whatever comes to the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.